This is The Lonely Office, your playbook for navigating the messy line between work and life. Our topics are sourced from real, anonymous workplace conversations happening within Glassdoor communities, from how to not get fired to negotiating severance. We discuss timely work-life issues so you don't have to brave that professional world alone. Matt, I got a story for you. All right, let's hear it. So Megan is a PR communications manager a PR communications manager. Now, she's got two screens open. She's got one that has a survey from Fishbowl, and she's got another one that has an email from her boss. Now, the survey on Fishbowl says that nearly 50% of employees are now using ChatGPT, and most of those people aren't telling their bosses about it. Now, the email that she's looking at from her boss praises Megan's work in the last two weeks. She's getting rave reviews around the company, specifically, Matt, for her writing skills. (laughs) Now, here's the problem. She needs to respond to her boss, but she's one of the 50%, Matt, and she's not been telling her boss or anybody that she's been using chat GPT for everything, even email correspondence to him. So what is she supposed to do? Does she respond back as herself? Does she respond back using chat GPT? Is she tethered to chat GPT forever? What is Megan supposed to do? Yeah, man, I don't think she should overthink this one too much. This chat GPT, this large language model, if it's not chat GPT, it's another version of of a large language model put out by another tech company. They're here to stay. So if she's tethered, that's it. Take the, uh, is it the red pill? And, you know, go all in. <laughs> I can understand her conflict, though. I understand what she's wrestling with right now, because it's like, she almost in a way is like, do I feel like a fraud? Or is this really just a tool that's enhanced what I truly do really well? I mean, I think we all are kind of wrestling with this as we're using it. This is great timing. As of March 1st, the company behind ChatGPT, OpenAI, just announced an application platform interface for the tool. If you're trying to understand what that means, that's tech speak for you're going to get hundreds, if not thousands of applications that now plug into this tool to do all sorts of cool stuff. And it's going to absolutely blow up. So we actually thought this was great timing to go into the library and, and bring out an old taping errand that we had I done. I remember this. Yeah. This is pressing it. We taped this episode about ChatGBT in early December of last year. Yeah, we're ahead of the game. Where we were ahead of the game. And now it's March 3rd. So I think this is great timing to take that episode out of the vault. We talked about a whole slew of topics, including are you in line to get your job displaced by AI or other models like ChatGPT3? Is this just a tool to develop first draft work or should we fear full automation? Intellectual property rights that are implicated by this stuff. I'm excited to kick this off and, you know, jump to that episode. Let's get into it. So Aaron, you know, there's now a famous or I guess infamous technology inspired quip that goes software is eating the world. It kind of seems that as a society, we've collectively held onto dormant fears about technology usurping, if not outright, eating us. So what is ChatGPT? Well, it's an AI-powered chat model which interacts in a conversational, almost human way to the questions submitted by users. The AI itself is based on the language model GPT-3, which if there are engineers listening in, probably are very familiar with. And to give you a scale of GPT-3's knowledge base, It was trained on more than 45 terabytes of text data. That's a trillion bytes per terabyte. And 
over 175 billion parameters, which are the variables the model uses to make predictions. Now, there's thousands of examples screenshotted across social media on networks like Fishbowl, Reddit, and Twitter. ChatGPT undoubtedly has many future iterations coming. But it already has many of us wondering whether this is just the first act or a harbinger of what's more to come. Everyone, pleasure to introduce Rusty Roof. Rusty is a former human resources executive leader at notable companies like PepsiCo and Electronic Arts. Kind of post that executive career, he's really become a name, particularly amongst entrepreneurs, as a super insightful board advisor and director and investor in a number of startups that you've heard of. And so we're really glad to have you on the show again, Rusty. Thanks for joining us. I'm happy to be back. I was telling you guys before the show, by the way, I was doodling with this last night and my son came down and he goes, hey, can I ask ChatGPT to write a punk song, like a punk rock song, lyrics? And I was like, yeah, sure, go ahead. And it creates these lyrics. And my, my son's like, this is the most amazing song I've ever heard in my entire life, man. And it was incredible. He's reading lyrics. And listen, I mean, there's some foreshadowing here, right? But maybe it's just the foreshadowing of something that like millions of humans will be more poignantly asking in mass in the relatively near future, which is, which is this. Are those long harbored fears of AI autobots phasing out humans? Is that actually starting to happen? So first of all, I think we should acknowledge that we're sort of on a bleeding edge of this conversation. While ChatGPT and different versions of it have been around for a while, and Matt can give us all the history, you know, just kind of jumped into the zeitgeist over the last couple of months, maybe in the last few weeks, right? All of a sudden, it's like, whoa, everybody's on it. Feels like the early days of Napster, right? You know, everybody was on Napster, the original one, for those who are old enough to remember, where you would just spend hours and hours and hours on Napster. And, and I think that's happening, as you said, Aaron, even to you. So what's at risk? I think we also ought to acknowledge that we'd be really naive if we didn't say that this is a conversation that's been going on for the last 50 to right. whatever years since, you know, technology started because Anybody who's ever worked in any kind of blue collar work um, has watched technology come in and try to figure out how to do more work, you know, with less right. resources and let's, let's apply automation, let's apply machinery. And so now all of a sudden, whoa, 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 it's in the knowledge sphere. Oh boy, now we're in trouble. Well, let's recognize that there's a lot of people who have been through this. So what's at risk? As you said, Aaron, my best sort of summation of what's at risk is any knowledge thing that's first draft. Like if you're being asked to do first draft work, go and come up with, hey, Give me a presentation. Give me um, your initial ideas. Go do research. That's first draft work. Now, that can go even further. I mean, I was getting a, a physical a couple of weeks ago, and in comes the physician assistant for the first 15 minutes. And she's taking all the vitals, and she's asking me all the questions over the last year, and all those kinds of things. And she's gathering up all of this information, and then she leaves, and 15 minutes later, the doctor comes in, having gone through all the notes, and starts the examination. Actually, 
the physician's assistant was doing first draft work. I mean, that could have been a machine asking me those questions, could have been in a machine and getting the blood pressure and doing all those things. So if, if you're doing first draft work, I think you got to be concerned. This is trained on, you know, existing human knowledge, right? It's human in its responses and its conversational responses. It's also human in the errors it makes as well. And we'll talk about that. I feel like another use case is like this facilitator use case, where if you look at the first version of the transactional web, a lot of the spaces or the markets that like were displaced or models that were displaced was like, if you're a broker, you know, these facilitator models where, you know, it was really easy for the internet to come and kind of partially displace some of this stuff, e-commerce on a grander scale versus brick and mortar. And so when I think from like kind of a conversational piece, if you're like maybe an event planner, project manager, it occurs to me that as a project manager, you're not necessarily a producer, you're not producing work, you're facilitating work. But ultimately, I think what was missing was this like human conversational layer up to this point, but you plug in a model like ChatGPT and all of a sudden you're like, you're not interacting with like a mechanical bot. It feels like you're interacting with like a real human project manager. So I think that could be another use case too. Well, the experiential part that I felt was, and I want to hear more about the errors because I haven't noodled around with it enough to kind of find some of those. There was a few things that that didn't work, but overall, what I was impressed with was the processing speed. And maybe I'm just naive. I'm not in the technology space in the same way that you are, Matt, and I don't have the experience in, across a lot of spectrums like you do, Rusty. But for me, I'm pretty, I think I'm pretty online with stuff and always trying to stay at least as ahead or near to the head of the curve as I can. But the processing speed for the query is just so impressive to me. If I even asked it to write a screenplay and it began, it was going on for 10 to 15 minutes. Unbelievable, that speed. It's like, it's not that humans can't do that. But like you said early on, Rusty, like doing a lot of work with the least amount of effort and time is possible. That's what's crazy. And I think that's what's probably prompting the questions that we're seeing on Fishbowl and across the spectrums. Like, I don't think it's crazy when you say we should be concerned. You know, I don't think it's just theoretically anymore. And I don't think it means fear in a negative way, but have an awareness in which we can look at this and go, you know, this is a lot closer than we think. Yeah, of course it is. I mean, if this stays available, right, open and available, that anybody can have some version of it, then I think we've got something to to look at and think about and go, hmm, so what does this mean for jobs of the future? What does this mean for jobs of today? If I'm in any kind of job, not just first draft, if, I, if like I'm in a job that's rule-based, repetitive and rule-based, like accounting, you don't make up things in accounting. You interpret what's already there. If you're in the law, you're interpreting what's already there. A paralegal may be pulling information and trying to put their own interpretation before a lawyer has an insight on top of it and tries to apply it. But put that rule-based stuff in, it's repetitive, and it's going to get there really quickly. Like you said, I mean, that's the magic of it. So you're sitting there and somebody asks, well, what about case studies, such and such, such and such? And boom, it comes back up, but it comes back up in a way that I can look at it and then quickly, because it's in, in, it's in my language, I can quickly turn around and either, either read it or skim it and turn around and beat it back. And somebody goes, oh yeah, that's what I was looking for. So I do think that speed and accuracy and just this being able to accumulate all of this knowledge is going to change the way we work. It's worth mentioning here too, if you haven't played with the tool, by all means, play with it. The way it works is you submit a text query 
And then in real time, the AI, you know, starts spitting out on the screen. And so like in a case that Aaron mentioned, where it's like, hey, write me a screenplay that's a mashup between this and this. It's fascinating because like you see the the spit out in real time happening. And that's where like the benchmarking, the comparisons start coming to play just psychologically. It's like, well, geez, no human on earth can spit out this fast with this amount of like knowledge. And, and so I think the experience side is, is really unique. And I definitely um, would encourage people to try it out in that way. What were some of the errors that you were talking about, Matt? What, what were some of the things that you felt that right. didn't feel personal? Yeah, I think there's like numerous dimensions you can measure that. The example I played around with, with first was more of like, write a, like a motivational speech in the spirit of MLK. And what occurred to me was like... It's a heavy lift, Matt, by the yeah, way. Yeah, it's a heavy lift. I really want to see what it could <laughs> do. Didn't into that. <laughs> I'm not a speech writer, but like, you know, alliteration and metaphor and motifs, right? Like humans have evolved an amazing capacity to utilize these devices. And I think it's kind of weak on those dimensions. Like explicitly, when you looked into the metaphors it was spitting out, it seemed kind of juvenile, like high school level, not certainly like, you know, MLK level or the level of our greatest speechwriters. But on the factual side, there's a really interesting question. I won't go into the detail of it, but it's a simple math question of, you know, a bat and a ball in total cost $1.10, right? The bat costs a dollar more than the ball how much does the ball cost? And like the vast majority of humans will come and say, hey, you know, one's a dollar, the other's 10 cents. They lose the fact that, no, they explicitly said the bat costs a dollar more than balls, so it's a dollar of five and five cents. And anyways, this AI scientist asks the chat GPT this tool and it does the exact same mistake to this like classic question that has been well-documented that humans do. And on the one hand, it's like, well, geez, like, isn't this supposed to be smarter than all of us? Well, it's, so it's kind of surprising. On the other hand, it's not surprising at all because once again, it's deriving its knowledge in many ways, its behavioral patterns, language models off of like the data set that's trained off of human knowledge. And so this is sad because you're going to be facilitating more false statements and misperceptions. On the other side, it's like, well, maybe it's redeeming because like, you know, humans still have the upper hand. Here's the difference, right? It should have learned that. Right. And the next time somebody poses that to the machine, the machine will get it right. And it won't forget it. I mean, like, so you've done that exercise before we all have, and it's been a number of years and we look at it again. Our brain doesn't necessarily go, oh, yeah, I know that trick. I remember that trick. We'll make the mistake again. It likely will not make the mistake again. And there's something comforting in that, right? Because over time, having a helper, a technological helper, that doesn't make mistakes is great because it takes away my opportunity to make the mistake. That gives me hope. Right. Yeah. I think Rusty's right. I mean, this will be banked, you know, in the future where the machine should be able to get it right. Well, Rusty, you mentioned first draft work. What about creatives? You know, so my mind's spinning. At first, it's kind of like when it doesn't hit your doorstep, you're kind of going, hey, everything's going to be okay. But as a storyteller myself and being friends with a lot of writers and creatives who are not, you know, creating content, ideating and performing in a lot of different ways. So you mentioned it as a tool. My first instinct was like, oh, this is a really cool tool because it does a lot of that, just that heavy lift, that kind of in the mud, the process building, the architecture building. Now I'm thinking, oh, this is just going to allow me to to iterate and have more nuance, do what humans do is to have more nuance. From a creative side, do you see that as a threat or do you see it as an opportunity as well? That's the first part. Second part is, could it eventually become a competitor in the sense that maybe it does get so nuanced that we have a just a wider 
option of competitors and creators and storytellers out there? It's a great question. And none of us have that crystal ball to look into. What I would say is initially, it's going to be a great enhancer, right? Because I'm just finishing up the last season of Better Call Saul and trying to get it done before the Golden Globes so that I can say that I've seen all of the television drama series. That's that's a big deal for everybody, but it is a, it's a big deal for it's me. A milestone. You know? It's a milestone. It's a milestone. It's a lot of television. There's nobody better than Vince Gilligan and his writing staff at giving Saul another way to scam somebody else, right? And I look at it and I go, who comes up with this? Well, wouldn't it be interesting for Vince Gilligan or anybody else to go, hey, actually, I'm looking for a con that could happen around this kind of scenario in the south of France and blah, 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 and have that first come back and go, oh, that's pretty good. I can build off of that. Right. Or right. that's really good. I'm going to use that, but give it credit. And I think that's where we're going to have to figure, lots of things we're going to have to figure out. You know, we use ChatGPT to write our college essay and we don't give it credit. Guess what? You're going to get caught. But if you oh, give yeah. it credit, <laughs> yes, do you right. get extra credit for going, <laughs> wow, that was really good. And the way you mined it, the way you queried and you mined it, I don't know how you got what you got, but that in right. itself might become a skill. Matt, I was telling both you and Rusty that my son was already, when he saw me mess around with it last night, he was like, so when I have to put a PowerPoint presentation on a book and I saw where his head was going, I was like... You know, I could, I could either say, whoa, 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 but I said, yeah, I mean, I think there is some nuance there, but yeah, it could just become a, a skill. Those, I don't know, what, what do we call Xennials or Xers? But like in high school, I recall really vividly the launching, the releasing of like these search engines. I remember using these and like recently I'm like, is this wrong? And like, and I wasn't plagiarizing, right? This is not like a, a cut and paste job, but I was definitely informing my papers by what I read and I felt like really guilty just using this. And I kind of feel like, Russ, you're right. You know, if you're a high school student, you're chomping on the bit and eventually teachers will become accustomed to like, fine, use it. But no, I can use it too. But use it just to inform, you know, no plagiarism here. Use it. Whoever minds it, to your point, in a smarter fashion or more precise or inspired fashion, you know, gets the better grade. Do you think Hollywood's salivating right now? Let's say you have an original screenplay. Again, and these are all iterative, right? It's not when we say original, it's built off of themes that are forever, but it's still original in the sense of its story and its time and the characters. Well, you think Hollywood's salivating now? Thinking about Chat GPT is like, oh, we already got Die Hard One. Instead of spending all that money on two, three, four, whatever, after one, maybe even to start one, but after one, now we're just putting it in the query. Yeah. You add a few different character names. They're templates, right? Like, I think we mentioned engineers, they're already serving up code in this thing. There's existing libraries that exist there where you can utilize these templates to inform, you know, what the error is. I think we both agreed, Die Hard 5, if ChatGPT existed back in whatever 90s, like, year, that could have been wholly written at that point by this AI, right? But not without somebody asking it the right question. Think about so I could go to ChatGPT right now and say, all right, give me a television episode about eight people that go to a resort someplace and someone dies in it. It's not going to spit back White Lotus. It's not going to get, it's not going to give White Lotus. I'm going to have to go deeper into, so I, I know, I don't think, I, I don't think Hollywood's going to sit today going, oh, wow, this is the end of us, or this is the beginning of us. I think it's like CGI. 
we all look at CGI today and we go, well, of course he didn't jump out of the airplane. Oh, wait a minute. That's Tom Cruise. Maybe he did. No, nobody else did. Nobody right. else jumped out of the airplane. It's believable. We accept it. Right. And it's a tool. And so maybe this becomes a tool. As a tool, though, there's got to be a transition, right? We have emerging technology that's starting a, starting to get us more centered in and, and really looking at this and go, okay, the reality of a shift is coming, uh, a deep and, and really intense shift. So if does this mean we're at some point obsolete in the workplace? How do we then fit into that new economy? Where do humans fit in? Right. Yeah. I mean, so I think to just again to take a step back at the top of this conversation, we talked about this language models being informed by human data, and so a lot of the arguments against a tool or innovation like this I've read online have been centered around the fact that well, that's a limitation, right? It seems like at best this is like imitation on a grand scale, right? On like the grandest of all scales, right? But I think what we lose scope of in that argument is that how much of our own innovation and productivity is driven by that, right? Like the saying goes, imitation is an agent of change and a cousin of innovation. They're really close. A tremendous amount of the market economy is generated by observing and learning from the pioneers before you, in some cases, just making it better. And so if that's the case, that's still quite a high bar, I think like, I don't, I don't buy that argument. I think that's a high bar. And the question is like, what's the role we as professional workers can do? I think Rusty mentioned blue collar versus professional. I mean, we just, we came off a week where Tesla released its first electric semi-trucks to the UPSs and Walmarts of the world. And so like, this is already happening to the kind of the more automatable, you know, manufacturing blue collar class. I think we're, we're now taking more notice. It's just like it's knocking on a lot of the professional services economy and professional service professionals doors. And we're starting to ask this question. In Fishbowl, I found some of the conversations around consultants in very self-admitting way saying, how much of our profession is about very little knowledge, just right piece of knowledge articulated in a very glib way and almost suggesting they're at the front lines of displacement. You know, I would say like there's a lot of professions like that probably doesn't go to the answering your question of what the future role is for humans. I don't think we know, but I don't think we should underestimate this thing either. Do you think it could be, Rusty, where we become more problem solvers in a macro sense? Maybe it's an opportunity where we just have to skill up and go, well, now we can kind of stand on the shoulders of the first draft workers, which essentially are taking the place that's taken by AI. Now we can roll our sleeves and actually fix some big time problems. And maybe we can accelerate that. Maybe I'm an optimist here, but do you see that as a possibility? I do. I like to look at the world and say, you know, the glass is, is half full. And it's, look, it depends upon where you sit, right? You know, if I'm sitting here right now as a first draft worker or looking at, you know, and saying, whoa, wait a minute, this is coming around a corner. It's really <laughs> optimistic. But if we tilt up and think about the possibilities Right. So I, I was trying to think last night about the possibilities. You know, if I'm an entrepreneur and I create something on Etsy, I have a creator, I'm, I'm on Etsy and I'm building up my business. And one of the things is just killing me is customer support. And I can't afford to go out and get intercom or, or hire a customer support, you know, company. I can't bring anybody in. But wow, this chat GPT, if I, tell it all about my business and I give it all of the parameters for returns and problem resolution and ideas and all those things. And I can turn that on. I now have a customer support department 
And I can, I can go spend my time on making more of my bowls or my, my next creative thing. So that's a positive to me. So yes, that does tilt us up. I'll give you one other example in the automation world. When I worked at Frito-Lay, you know, one of the worst and toughest jobs was to be a packer. And what a packer did at the end of a packaging machine line was he or she put cardboard boxes together. And then they picked off of the packaging machine lines, bags of chips, and put them in the box, closed the box, put it on a conveyor belt, and it went off onto a truck. It was a brutal human job. You know, people would do this and they'd have repetitive motion injuries. You know, they, their wrists, they could hardly move there after years. It was awful, awful. It was a paying job. It was real, but it wasn't a great human potential fulfillment job. If a machine could do that, wouldn't we all feel better? Maybe not the packer that loses his or her job, but we feel better about that. So if we can free people up to let their minds go, to be more creative, to reach their full intellectual capacity, and AI helps us do that, that's a good thing, right? Right. Great example of this happening in a space is chess. If you look at the space of chess for the better part of maybe a decade, They've been using chess bots powered by AI for a while to train against the chess athletes to level up. You know, I think this was like surfaced even more just recently with, I think it was Hans Niemann and, you know, the current chess grandmaster, Magnus Carlsen, basically going on record saying that he thought this fellow athlete was cheating. And of course, what did they do? They used AI as the benchmark to see whether Hans to determine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so like, don't know the details as much, but you know, I think it's something along the lines of these chess engines can, you know, predict the perfect move, and it's really hard for a human to do the perfect move 100 percent of the time. The best of these chess players were doing, you know, the perfect move 70 percent of the time. It just goes to show, like, that's a space where it's been happening for a while. It's been leveling up the human in their performance, and some cases it might tip over. I think we were talking about esports. And like esports, my goodness, like you put a like an AI trained bot to play, like you don't need humans. Like it'll never be fun to watch two machines um, go after yeah. each other. I don't think. But watching a human compete with the machine will always be interesting. People like to watch other humans. I mean, anybody who watches golf knows that, you know, the normal human being cannot do what they do on Sundays. Right. No matter how many, maybe once in a blue moon, you could you could do something like that. But what we like to watch humans do things that are beyond our capabilities. So a human against a machine could be really interesting. A machine against a machine. I don't know. Maybe if I have ownership in the machine, I don't know. I, you know, but otherwise that, that I don't find that interesting. Yeah. The story arc is so much more interesting. It's, I mean, think about Rocky four. I mean, I, I know it's not an Oscar winner here, but like looking into my childhood, right. It's, you know, it's Rocky and he's facing, you know, Drago who essentially there's an artificiality to his performance. He's using steroids, using these things to upgrade, right, in an artificial way. What this reminds me of is a post that came up. It goes, so where are we landing on the ethics of using chat GPT to generate deck content? So, so people's minds are already spinning. I love that we're talking about a future. People are concerned, like, hey, okay, if I'm using this, there's some ethical implications here. What I ask you guys is, doesn't this mean that we should be focused on ensuring ethical use now and in the foreseeable future. And aren't they already doing this or at least attempting to do this, Matt? Yeah. I mean, so I, my understanding is that before they released this version, there was a good amount of thinking that OpenAI, which is the formerly not-for-profit, now for-profit 
entity that researched and deployed this language model incorporate a good amount of filters existing. And so like, I think there's filters and constraints on the type of imagery, you know, for example, there's some inherent human bias training it did. So there's already a bit of work in it to try to combat that. And I think it just goes towards the foresight of the innovators and being concerned like, well, this, you know, where can this go? I think the ethical argument is an important one for that reason. I mean, there's a lot of dimensions you can take it. You could also take along the lines of creative copyright or just copyright. How many derivatives down do you have to go before you you still need to give some royalty or license to the originators, particularly in a, in a universe now or a reality where Rusty said where like everything is about the quality of mining. So it's almost like the more you know, the more you're able to call upon the rhymes and the metaphors to query. And it's like, well, geez, where do you begin giving credit in that type of reality? These are important questions to ask. I don't think they're going to be acted on until this thing gets a little beyond the first draft mode, like Rusty said. Anybody who did any work should get attribution. I mean, any, anybody who's created anything should get attribution. But when was the last time you were in a presentation when somebody was given it, showing a deck or written a presentation, and at the end of it said, oh, by the way, I got most of this off of Wikipedia. I mean, come on now. I think we'll, there will be a, become a point where, you know, you may need to say, yeah, this came from ChatGPT, or we just assumed it did, and it's your original insight on top of it that is is what makes it unique. I do think the most valuable and novel uses of this technology is yet to arrive, and, and it'll arrive when you have the proprietary data kind of being fed into. We talked about this. So in as far as it's leveraging the, the corpus of information text data out there, this is, my understanding for the most part, publicly available. Well, what happens when you start leveraging private data, right? So you're sitting behind you know a treasure trove of equity research analyst reports at a bank, and you feed it that information to derive some summary or prediction of where the, the, the markets are going. The medical space, digesting radiology kind of space, like digesting the universe or that the corpus of all reports, lab reports and x-rays and all the MRIs to, to identify or pre-identify tumors. That's where this thing really makes a big leap function improvement. And at that point, you're monetizing. It's probably a company or an entity that's built atop of that proprietary data set, the dollars and cents are working themselves out because the, you know, the company's monetizing. But in as far as like a, a free commoditized version of this exists, yeah, I agree with Rusty. It, it'll probably just work, you know, or some creative common license version of this might just. I, I don't think we can automatically assume that there will always be a free and open public benefit way of, of getting to this, right? I mean, while we look at it and we go, oh, of course, there'll be access. Everybody will be able to, to, to grab into this technology. Not necessarily true. We could say today, well, everybody can get to Wikipedia because if you can get to the internet, then you can get to Wikipedia. That's true. If you can get to the internet. Not everyone can get to the internet all the time when they need to. The thing that kind of concerns me, maybe even more so than some of the ethics of attribution or, you know, did, did I use this or did I not use this, is the ethics of accessibility, equal accessibility. That's a great point. Yes, that's a big deal. And then beyond that, like, look, the, the track record of OpenAI, starting as a nonprofit and then becoming a for-profit, I think Altman's on record, Sam Altman, kind of the founder of, of OpenAI is on record saying that it's just too computationally expensive to do this in a complete non-for-profit way. And so there's like, you know, A-list notable technology investors you're familiar with who put money into this thing. But, you know, that's probably has to be an indicator of source that there are some constraints here 
that will have to come into play because of these, the computational expense of making meaning and training the world's universe of knowledge and text data. One thing I didn't think about was what you both said is the, is the ethical implication of accessibility. And to your point, then we have to look at it like, does this become ironically a human right? In the same way that public libraries do everything they can to grant access to that internet stream that you're talking about, right? Like there is a place that you can go that isn't in the shadows, that doesn't have a paywall, where if you need to access this, even in its basic form, you can access it. Do we want this thing to be, this technology to be more human in the sense that uh, it takes on human characteristics? Because it seems like it's moving towards a more human type of interaction. It feels like we need to put those barriers in there to prevent chaos or disaster or some of the other terrible endings to to the movies that we all love. I think it's actually simpler than that. Look, I think the universe, like this super futuristic universe, or a lot of, you know, realm science fiction, you know, crossing the Rubicon into consciousness and all, put that all aside, right? Like, having spoken to far smarter people than myself on the AI side, like, when it comes to something like level five driving and automated, we're still far away from that, the truth is. And I think what we're talking about here is far simpler, which is like just basic market forces coming to play and saying, if you don't give this thing direction, you're not going to be able to give it value and meaning. Just approach it with a direction, with a strategy, with a mindset, with like constraints. In the same way, I think this first version that Sam Altman's script put out, they've, they've done that to a degree. And that's why I think it's modestly successful in getting adoption. It's really as simple as having some blueprint of how you want to use it and introducing the marketplace. And the, and the market will reward you with people using it and potentially monetizing it. I'm less concerned about this whole like third act of these things being like, I mean, certainly in my lifetime uh, happening. And and I think it's more about the first act and second act of how the market, the economic market uses this technology and the winners will be the ones who give it good blueprints. My worry always is unintended consequences, right? So every technology that has gone bad, it wasn't because they designed it that way. The things that we we see happening in social media today and the polarization of social, social media and what happens. No one said, you know, hey, I got a great idea. Let's put people in a common place so that they can fight, <laughs> right? And so they can get upset at each other and they can alienate and, and deny each other. No, no, that was, it's, it's the unintended consequences that are so hard to see that you do your best. But, you know, what you said, Matt, that is the unintended consequence that concerns me is you said something about, you know, the economic impact. If there is right. an economic impact, the invisible hand of capitalism will always show up. And that's when I get concerned. So here's what I want AI to do for me. I want it to know me so well that when I go to Italy next year in May, that it will already have built the itinerary for me because it knows me and what I like. And in fact, it's using some kind of chat GPT to go forward for me and talk to people who in Italian that I can't talk to. Book the reservations for you. Yeah. So I'm all good with that. I want that. I, that is great. What I don't want is the technology coming over and saying, oh, well, we think you, you like this. We think you're going to like that better. I love recommendations. If recommendation is really me, I look at it and go, wow, that feels like magic. Otherwise, I feel like I've been promoted to, 
right? And so I worry about that getting inside of AI because then all of a sudden I'm not hearing what I want to hear or should hear. I'm hearing what they want me to hear. Hey, you made it. Thanks for tuning into The Lonely Office. If you like what you heard, follow us on all major podcast platforms so you don't miss an episode. And make sure and tap five stars and leave a review. I know everyone says it, but it actually helps others like you discover the show. Remember, the topics you hear us talk about on the show are sourced from Glassdoor communities, where professionals are having candid conversations about their careers anonymously with others in their industry. To be part of that conversation, download the Glassdoor app. And when you're in the app, make sure and join the Lonely Office Bowl. That's where we are. When you're there, you can suggest a topic idea or an episode idea, or you can make it more formal and email us at thelonelyoffice at glassdoor.com. We'll catch you next time. 